Hey, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the show is both on Instagram and Twitter under Unstructured P. Please come by, check it out if you like the show, say hello, and tell me what you think. Thanks. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today we're joined by a fantastic guest, really big name, super happy to get have him on, Dan Nitro-Clark. How are you doing today, Dan? Well, my name is actually only two syllables, Dan Clark. He said it was a big name. <laughs> well, I had to expand it a little bit, right? Or, or maybe like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Maybe it's the nitro part, the nitro part that makes it seem kind of big. Kind of explosive. Or old. <laughs> well, you know, you're, you know, you're old. I used to do a TV show, American Gladiators, obviously, but you know, you're old when you start doing like Sports Illustrated. Where are they now? And, oh, and, yeah. No, we did an article for Sports Illustrated. I think it was last year. And this year was a 30 year anniversary from an American Gladiators first aired. So it's been uh, it's it's been crazy. So old is something I'm okay with, but it's <laughs> also interesting that maybe about eight to ten years ago. Uh, the Gladiator Show went to ESPN Classics. Ah. Well, <laughs> I don't know if it'll make you feel any better on it, but the show is new to me, believe it or not. I, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm really conflicted right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for some reason, I missed it the first time. Maybe it's because I was in the Army. Maybe, you know. Well, thank you for things. your service. Let me say that. Thank you oh, for your fine. service. Oh, that's but, fine. Not a welcome. Not a... <laughs> <laughs> I have a weird thing about that where I appreciate it, but there are people out there who have sacrificed, who have seen combat. I've never seen combat. So I always kind of feel like I'm stealing a little bit of valor if I accept it too much. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, it makes sense because I played professional football, at least in the NFL, for right about a season. So when people say, were you a professional football player? I say, yeah, okay, but it's not like, you know, and I played for the Rams. <laughs> so when the Rams are, or, you know, they actually gave me tickets last week as an alumni to go to the, to the San Francisco game. But when we had the Super Bowl this year and the Rams played, uh, they invited me to the Super Bowl, not to the actual game, but to go to some of the festivities. And I cool. think it's wasn't because, uh, you know, I was a great Rams player. I barely played, but it was, I think, <laughs> because of the American Gladiators, right? But I was too ashamed. I was like, you know, I'm not going to go stand next to Eric Dickerson and all these legends. So, yes, I do understand that feeling. But I'll remind you, like people remind me, hey, 90.9% of the population doesn't serve. 99% of the population didn't make sure. professional football. So you did it. So thank you for your service and shut up. Roger that. <laughs> <laughs> Three bags full, man. Well, and that's cool. I, that's kind of going, I think, with what you are teaching now um you mentioned visualization and i love myself it's a significant part of your book early in your recovery on how to get yourself back on a path my book f dying not my first book. f dying yeah okay. uh, correct f dying okay. not yes. my third book my second book is there a third book i, I missed it yeah yeah i just sent out we're just sending out the proposal right now it's, it's called calm the beast uh, okay. So okay. your, your original question was what, Eric? Because I'm, as I <laughs> said, I'm a legendary talker. I don't even know what I'm talking about sometimes. <laughs> I love myself as that's, a phrase. That's good. You should, Eric. You you served the country. You're married. You taught at Arizona. <laughs> you ran marathons. You should love yourself. That's a great way to start the day. 
Perfect. But you are teaching people to say that. It's a tough thing, you know, but I think most problems in life, no matter what they are, whether it's relationships, whether it's your station in life, comes down to the simple fact that we don't love ourselves. And when I look at self-discipline, I like to call it self-love. Because discipline, you know, I got to crack the whip. I got to do this. I got to get up at 6 a.m. I have to make those extra calls for work. I have to show up for my family. You know, oh my God, there's so much to do. I got to be disciplined, got to be disciplined. I like to reframe that as I love myself too much to allow myself not to exercise. I love myself too much to allow myself to go stay up late, drink, and, you know, go put a bunch of cocaine up my nose. So for me, reframing it that way seems to be more effective and it seems to work with a lot of people, especially with kids. If you have kids, instead of saying, no, 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 no more dessert, you teach, you tell them, you know, dessert has sugar in it, has, you know, all these things. It's, you know, you're on your way to diabetes. They don't understand that. But you say, I love you too much to let you eat that right now. Hmm. Then what can they say? It resonates. It resonates. My girlfriend's 80-year-old son, you know, I, I've conditioned him with this, that I love you too much to let you do things. And he's eight years old. And one time I was like, yeah, you can have a second cookie. And he looked at me, or a third cookie. And he looked at me. He says, don't you love me? <laughs> you know? How do you respond to that? Because you're like, wait, it's stuck. It <laughs> exactly. really stuck. It's but stuck. then I feel really bad right now. But well, it's stuck. You, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I sent an email to Carol Dweck, who wrote Mindset, and I thank her. Mm. And I thank her. I said, I thank you for teaching me these principles about delaying gratification and learning to love challenges and obstacles because they are the key to growth instead of it being stuck in a place where you're only looking at results. That's awesome that you brought, um, swung to Carol Dweck. Um, I can't remember her name, but there's another author along that line who wrote Grit. And I haven't I read it. I haven't read it. I feel like they kind of go together. There's a lot of problems with the mindset now. And I know the way Dweck wrote it is not the way people use it now. Now it's a, you're wonderful. You're great. You're super. And she's kind of more of the mindset of, don't say you're so smart. Say you tried so hard. Absolutely. And that's revolutionary. You know, not, not for me as a coach, as well as a parent, because... The studies show, and I don't know exactly which ones, but in the book, <laughs> if, you go, if you haven't read Mindset, it's, it's a game changer, and it's just for those things, because they have found that the kids who told they were geniuses didn't learn to understand and appreciate the process, and when they hit something difficult, they felt like they've lost their genius and they weren't motivated to work. And even I think if you look at the 10,000 hour rule from Malcolm Gladwell, even though I guess there's been this other book that uh, was written. It's that Anders Ericsson, actually, who initially came up with it. And Gladwell sort of messed it up a little. Oh, did he? How did, what was the differentiation? <laughs> well, Malcolm Gladwell saying 10,000 hours and you'll get it down. The original rule was deliberate practice. And it's a very significant point that was missed. It's not just, uh, you can go out and swing a club for 10,000 hours, but that doesn't make you golf well. Well, I've heard deliberate practice, and I didn't know that was uh, Anders, but I didn't know that uh, it was missed in Gladwell's book. But there's a different book out too. I think this guy Epstein wrote it. It was a uh, New York- Sports Gene. Yeah, the sports gene, right? 
Sorry, we should trade reading lists, I guess. Right, the sports <laughs> gene. That's on my that's on my list to read because him and uh, he, him and Gladwell got together, right? And they had the conversation. Uh, no, they had the conversation. Did they? Okay. About like, look, you you know, ten thousand hours. Well, look at someone like uh, uh, Nadal, the tennis player. They had a bunch right. of diversity growing up, and they have two athletes who ended up best in the world. And based upon right. yeah, based upon that, I think. Well, uh, from the interview, the talent clusters is a part of what he went into. Where um, all, all the uh, sprinters are Jamaican, all the um, Russian tennis players, all the Korean. Oh, what do the Koreans do? But yeah, the talent clusters. Taekwondo. Taekwondo. Okay. Ta- taekwondo and ping pong. So, so it's interesting. You know how <laughs> we get to where we're going is interesting. And back to your original thought, Eric. You know the idea of learning to love the challenge and obstacles and the process because all the times I've had to restart in my life and mm-hmm. reimagine myself, uh, reinvent myself. All the times I've had to pick back up from a setback whether it was the death of a dream, a heart attack, back surgery, losing someone close to me, the process has always been the same when you rise up, when you make your comeback. So it makes sense. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, because you've experienced something that very few people have, and that's celebrity. And it's a big celebrity. And I think that celebrity in of itself is a very strange, fascinating, I don't know if you'd say situation or feeling or something, but it's something I'd like to understand, especially how it is to relate to others, to know that everybody's looking at you. How do you feel? How do you move around the world? Things of that sort. Celebrity is is an interesting thing. So what is celebrity? It's somebody or a group of people knowing you for something. Hopefully it's something good. <laughs> so you're, so you're in, not infamous. And, you know, for me, the first time I knew, well, so for me being growing up as an athlete, mm-hmm. there was a certain amount of being a celebrity in, sure. in high school, in college, uh, not so much in the pros. But in my first year when I went to Europe and played, I was a star of the team. So was, there was that celebrity. But even being on an NFL team, there's a sense of celebrity. Oh, you're a professional football player. So celebrity, you know, for me is something I've been with me a long time, you know, from playing high school football to college football to getting the professional, even at different levels. So with American Gladiators, it was to a whole nother level. But what celebrity did and how that whole cycle started for me is when I was a young kid, I was overweight. I was uh, about to drop out of school. I was going down the wrong path. You know, by the time I was a freshman in high school, I was doing quaaludes, PCP, acid, smoking pot, ditching school. So I had a lot of empty spaces inside of me. And the first time I learned to feel good about myself is when a coach patted me on the back in football and he said, good job, Clark. And he said that, man, Eric, that was such an amazing feeling. And I wanted that again. So I worked hard in football to get the, the praise because it filled those spots that were empty inside of me. And I kept working for that praise and that ad- adulation. And somewhere along the line, you know, like in my mid twenties, I realized I s- had mistaken that adulation for love. Mm. You know, I, I, that they, they love me, they love me, they love me. And then as I got to be a little older, I, I realized like, you know what? 
wow, that's not filling these empty spaces. And that's when my personal growth path really, really changed because I was 28 years old. I was, uh, you know, famous to an extent, you know, billboards, cover of TV guide, action figures, but none that's of famous. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, wait, we determined you were on the Simpsons. We talked about that before the show. So you made it, <laughs> but none of that helped, um, this, this little bit, the sadness is emptiness in, inside of me. And that's when I had to raise my hand up and said, you know, I need help. I need help. And I started therapy and that the 35 to a 25 year journey of therapy and that personal growth is where I learned to put tools in my nitro toolbox <laughs> to help me and help other people live a happy, fulfilled, meaningful life. And that is what I coach people. And it's still a work in progress because I'm still, you know, growing and changing and everything that I've learned. Mm -hmm. I coach and I teach now. One thing you mentioned my teaching at the uh, U of A extended you a lot of the courses. I don't know if you've heard of just in time learning. No. Well, that's where you are literally learning at the last second when you are about to do it. Like I was listening to your book right before the interview. I literally believe in that. And I kind of have to, well, when teaching all the courses, I had to learn the subject often right before I taught it. And one thing great about that situation, though, was the students would push back at me. And as they pushed at me or I saw how they were receiving it, I actually learned the subject in a far deeper and more meaningful way than I think I ever could have learned in a class or anything else. Do you find that with your coaching? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one thing to coach um... – indirectly by giving friends advice, people in your mm -hmm. life advice uh, that works, then to formally do it with a stranger and to have a framework to do it. And every time I coach someone and I give them a breakthrough and they have a transformation, I learn something. And where I get stuck, I learn something. And when I can't help people, I also learn something. Like, I think the biggest wound I have of not being able to help people are two people. One was my father. My father died um, from a opiate overdose uh, maybe 22, 23 years ago. I didn't have the tools then. I was 35 years old. Um, mm -hmm. And that was hard for me. That I And it really made me wanted to grow and work on my conflict resolution skills. Because I, mm -hmm. the way I grew up was like, hey, you're dead to me. Oh, you're dead to me. <laughs> oh, you looked at my girl. I'm either going to beat you up or I'm not talking to you. You know, uh, right. And that was where my conflict resolution skills. And I wish I would have had them so I could have helped my father uh, with his addiction. And then two and a half years ago, my younger brother died from alcoholism and I couldn't save him. And someone who helps transform people's lives, it was really, really a tough pill to swallow. But it allowed me to reframe and I understood this fundamental truth better than I ever have. And that is... I can only help someone who wants to be helped, who wants to change. No matter how much you love somebody, no matter how much you care about somebody, no matter how hard you push somebody, if someone isn't ready and doesn't want to change, it's not going to happen. True. And I did notice that, that there is, um, you've suffered a lot of death around you through your life. Yeah. 
that's, a, that's pretty hard to, uh, to move forward. You know, like you said in the beginning of the conversation, you know, you didn't see combat and you base your experience upon not those others who served with you and didn't see combat, but to the others who did. So mm -hmm. I think that's something we do as human beings. We don't feel justified in what we've done because we're comparing it to people at the highest levels, right? Mm -hmm. You want to be a podcaster, you look at Joe Rogan. Wow, I'm not successful. Joe Rogan's successful. Oh, sure. Right? You want to be an actor. Oh, I'm not George Clooney. I'm not successful. You want to be an a entrepreneur. Oh, look at uh, the cat from Facebook. So in that same respect, yeah, I've suffered a lot of death. You know, my, when I was 10, my older brother was 12. He got electrocuted and he died in my arms. But then I met uh Immaculate. i can't say her last name she was from rwanda she watched all the oh, yeah the one who forgave and yeah. was best friends with the person who slaughtered her family yeah Immaculate bill Gale. she got a really tough name she wrote a book she was good friends with my oh, sister wow. i've met her quite a few times and i was like wow i don't know suffering like she's known suffering so you say that to me and i can say thank you for you know acknowledging <laughs> that but to me so many people have had it worse but I think that's another good point is no matter if someone has a great life or if someone has a tougher life, they're both suffering equally to them. And to be a good coach, you have to meet them at that point because the ultra wealthy have different problems. Where do I park my boat? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, gosh, this fourth vacation house really put us over. I can't manage it. You know, which, um, which school program are we sending to my kid in Europe? I just don't know it. But they're still real. They still create anxiety. They still create the beast, regardless of where they're at. And that's also something I've learned. People have more. People that do, they still have problems. People who had less hardship in their lives, they still have challenges. People who had terrible hardships in their life, sometimes they've worked through them and they don't have challenges. So just learning to meet people True. where they're at has been really helpful for me. I can imagine. Now, um, to go back in time, I asked you about celebrity because that was something obviously I'm not familiar with. Um, but another thing you've talked about, you mentioned the drug use and things like that. And then you pivoted into steroids later. I did in my conversation. No, in your life. <laughs> oh yeah. They, they, they weren't mutually exclusive. They usually went well together. <laughs> oh, as a cocktail. Yeah. As Charming. A cocktail. Not at the same time. So, okay. um, I started drinking when I was 10. Uh, that was after my brother died. I saw my dad who had so much grief and he was crying and he would drink himself uh, uh, until, you know, he couldn't stand. So I thought that's what you did at 10 years old overcome pain. My dad had a restaurant. Um, and so I would break into the bar, small little family business at night because uh, we lived above it. And I would go and, and drink vodka and whiskey. So for me, numbing was something that happened, you know, at a very, very, very young age. And then it went away for a couple of years because I was with my mom, you know, they were divorced. I went back and lived with my mom in uh, California. And then when I went back with my dad, he was still numbing because he didn't deal with that wound, that wound of losing a kid, you know, and not dealing with it. He dealt it with it by numbing. So now he was on to quaaludes, uh, pot, cocaine, all these different things. And I was a good son. <laughs> you know, I, fo <laughs> I followed my father's footsteps. Uh, and then... 1987, long, long time ago. This is before uh, the steroids were 
Yeah, so well known. You mentioned steroids in 80, I'm sorry, 82. You mentioned steroids mm-hmm. in 80, 1982. People are like, what is that? You know, I, right. I don't know what that is. So I was playing college. Unless you're in East Berlin. You still, no, I'm still, people <laughs> were, I, I am telling you, I, 1982, I'm 17 and a half years old. I just fit, I got injured at a freshman and junior college, and I saw my dream evaporate of going to get a football scholarship, right? So there's a guy in this gym and he's huge and he's ripped. And I was like, dude, you're, you look amazing. He was a couple years older than I, maybe 24, 25. And I said, what do you do? How do you get this way? And I'd never heard of steroids. And he says, I take steroids. I'm like, what, what is that? <laughs> and he's like, you know, it's these things that I got from the doctor and they help you get bigger, stronger, faster. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah. You just take this injection. And he said, you know, there's this, there's this guy, a Schwarzenegger. You know, Mr. Universe, mm-hmm. some people think he's using it and the Hulk, Lou Ferrigno and some professional football players. Cause I get your point with my doctor. And I was like, dude, I am in. You, you, <laughs> and I said, you're sure they're safe? And he looks at me and he says, Hey, it's a doctor. Exactly. So I went there like the next month and uh, the doctor would not give me any drugs because he said you had to be 18. So on my 18th birthday, I got $172 together. I don't know if it was, I can't remember my lunch money or my dad gave it to me. And I went down from Orange County, California to Los Angeles. And I went to one of the very first uh, steroid doctors in America. And I got testosterone and Dianabol and a few other things. And, you know, they worked. I put the weight back on that I'd lost from the surgery. I rehabbed quicker and I got bigger, stronger, faster. This is the crazy question I have about that. And I wonder, because the steroids have been proven to be very effective. I think everyone would agree. Have or have not? Have been proven. Oh, they're they're absolutely effective. Are you familiar with people who, for example, are runners or other athletes and they lose fitness, but if they were in peak shape at one time, it's almost like your body takes a shape or a template in of itself. And while you may go fallow with the muscles... The tissue's still there. It's just worn down. It can be built back up, and they can come right back into peak shape. Are I, you familiar with that? Or I don't quite know what you're asking me. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm leading to quite um, an overall question. I'm curious your thoughts on if steroids are used to get to a, shall we say, higher than normal or average shape, is it different than a person, an average person who, let's say, didn't use them? I think the ability to recover faster is what makes them work so well. That, and they give you a certain amount of energy and aggression Mm. that helps you push through both. Uh, Anybody who tells you there's no such thing as roid rage is full of shit. Oh, really? Now, look, they give you aggression. But that doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're going to go rip a car door off, you know, oh, car, sure. or you're going to go walk in and punch your wife in the mouth. But right. they increase aggression. And it may be just 10%, maybe just a little where you just snap at someone just a little bit quicker. You know, I've been around them for, you know, 35 years. I've seen so many people go on and off and, and they do give you aggression. They do work. But once you start down that slope... It's hard to go back. And in my first book, Gladiator, A True Story of Roy's Rage Redemption, I go into that whole story about steroid use, steroid abuse, what it's like going off, coming on. And, and uh, you know, it's not as bad as everybody says it is, 
but it's right. not not as harmless as the people who still use them say it's not. And and, and their steroids are everywhere now. I mean, forget about professional sports. On every corner, right. there's a hormone replacement shop, <laughs> and that's the same thing. It's just to the degrees where when you're a young guy, you have a 900 to 1200 to 1500 amount of amount of testosterone in your body. When you get older, it goes down to three or 400. You pump right. it back up to an optimal seven to 800 range. But when you're young and you're popping that testosterone in your body, you're getting up to 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, you know, milligrams of testosterone in your body. So you're going quadruple. And it, and it takes a toll on the joints. There's been some stun, studies done about your joints and, you know, the knees, uh, because your body cannot handle that quickness of the, the growth and the strength. And I think also as, as young kids, you want to, I think it's hard. I think it's really, really, really hard because if you don't know yourself well, when you start to go through your cycles where your testosterone is going up and down, especially when you come off, it can lead to depression. Because mm. you're having, the second you put testosterone in your body, your body stops producing it. Oh, really? Yeah. So it starts suppressing it. So you go on for six months, a year, two years. When you go off, your body's not producing any, very, very little. And it feels terrible. Now they have all, kind of, all kinds of drugs to help your body cause it to produce more testosterone therapy. They call it post-cycle drugs. But anyways, I do digress. No, this is fascinating. I don't know any of that. <laughs> so but, um, I, I just made the assumption that the depression might have been caused by a whole, I was super strong and really bulking up, and now I can't because I don't have the tool that was being used. I think it's a double-edged sword. I think it can be caused by that, especially if you don't have a good sense of yourself and your whole self is in this meat suit that you build. Your whole identity and the only way you know how to feel good about yourself is through the adulation, the tension you get by the meat suit, right? When that meat suit is gone, you're like, oh my God, who am I? Don't matter. Like you ever notice when a really big guy walks into a room, everybody looks and whether it's good or bad, whether they're going to roid roid head or wow, (laughs) regardless what they're saying, the people look and you go back to celebrity when people notice you, there's something about about us intrinsically that wants us to be better. I don't know what it is. It's there. It wants us to shine. It wants us to be good. It wants us to continue to achieve. And, and I think that is part of our happiness, you know, is moving forward. It doesn't have to be to the high levels. And it doesn't mean that you're not happily achieving while you're achieving, but there's just something about us as a, as a species. Um, so that whole idea of, of being big, and then on top of that, you get the double whammy because you have now less testosterone and tons of estrogen in your body. Mm. Yeah, just you have those weepy days as a man. <laughs> wow. Um, so to pivot a little bit, let's talk about something that was really dire. I understand that after your heart attack, a couple of years later, you pulled out the spandex. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, yeah, yes, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. I did I did wear the spandex. I actually took a photo in it. Um, you know, spandex was something so it all goes back to fame. So after <laughs> Gladiators was off the air, 
I wanted to try to distinguish myself as an actor, as in a writer. And I wouldn't talk about it. People say, are you that glad? I said, nope. You know, I, I I just would say no because I you know I was going to be a thespian. I didn't take the page out of Dwayne Johnson's book, The Rock. <laughs> you know, Dwayne <laughs> the Rock Johnson until he got famous enough, then he became Dwayne Johnson. But I was a little embarrassed of that, and so I didn't wear the spandex, and I had put it away for almost twenty five years. It was buried. And one day I was going through my garage after the heart attack and I saw it. It was literally, I opened this thing and it was like, ah, cobwebs and little witches and stuff. And there was that shiny singlet. (laughs) And I realized that, you know, for a long time, I had taken myself too seriously. Mm -hmm. I had thought too much of myself and this thing that brought a lot of people happiness. That show brings happiness. I have someone come up to me almost every single day either on the street or Facebook or wherever and said, Oh dude, I loved you on that show. Thanks. And that gave someone a, you know, gave people a lot of joy. And I said, who am I the dick, you know, that takes (laughs) himself so seriously. And after the heart attack, you know, I said, you know what? I don't take myself serious. I need to have fun. I need to have some joy. I need to be able to make fun of myself more, you know? And so one day I put on my spandex and I went into, uh, here in Los Angeles, went into my gym and wore it for a workout. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you were worried they weren't going to hold together if i recall uh well no they were made very well i i, I thank you okay. i thank the seamstress those things you know they, they look i don't fill them the same way <laughs> <laughs> i've also learned as i get older eric that uh, spandex is a privilege not a right and the day i got my aarp card i gave up my right to wear spandex oh <laughs> you've got an aarp card wow no that, no, I actually didn't. <laughs> okay. I, I should. I'm 55. But for some reason, the mailman knew better. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> um, you also talked about how you put forth so much effort to become a writer, like you just mentioned now. But after your first novel, it didn't meet your own personal expectations. And so you quit for a while. How did you find your path back can you discuss that like you did in the book so let me tell you why i first started writing right i started writing because i'll loop back to when i said to you conflict conflict resolution skills i had none when my brother died when i was 10 he died in my arms he got electrocuted my dad or any parent parental figure never had one conversation with me Hey, it's going to hurt. You're going to be sad. My mom was Asian. She barely spoke the language. Now I love her to death and they don't come from a warm culture. So she never had a conversation. So that's just something I, I just put a lid over in order to survive. You don't speak about these things. Big boys don't cry. You don't talk about them. You just put, you know, yeah, you hold your chin up and, and you go forward. That's what men do. But I had this thing. Remember, I was telling you that beast inside of me, that sadness. And I started writing, putting things on paper to get it outside so I could look at almost like a watchmaker can pick up the face of the clock and see the inner machinations of it, the, how it works, how it ticks. And that's what writing became a cathartic experience. That's why I started to write. But for me to write took a lot of, um, I won't use the word courage because I didn't feel like I was being brave, but it took a lot of learning a skill. 
because I was the meathead in college or high school who wouldn't take typing because I was so sure I was going to have a secretary taking diction for me. <laughs> I, mean, I was, I was that meathead. That was the culture I grew up, I grew up in. So the first mm-hmm. thing I had to do was like, Oh, I got to learn to type before I can write. But one thing I'm good at, and, and that is I understand processes. You want to mm. exercise, you want to get strong, use this process. You want to type, you use this process. You want to lose weight, you use this process. You want to find meaning in your life and fulfillment instead of happiness, you use this framework or this process. So I'm a good worker. Uh, so I bought Mavis Beacon and I tried to teach myself to type, but I didn't like Mavis Beacon and finally learned to type when I got Mario Brothers teaches typing. <laughs> I love it. That's the way, Eric, that I learned. So I taught myself to type, read every book I could, and just got up and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And it was terrible. But there was one book out there that really freed me because I can be a perfectionist uh, who sometimes doesn't launch, who doesn't do anything because I'm so worried about the outcome. And mm. for as a writer, it was um, a book by Julia Cameron, and that book was called The Artist's Way. And the biggest thing about The Artist's Way, and I've given this book to so many people and I've recommended is it teaches you to journal the in an exercise called the morning pages. You get up in the morning and the first thing you do while your mind still has a clear path from your subconscious is you get up and you just write for 15 to 20 minutes. And there's only two rules. You don't stop typing or writing and there is no backspace. And what this teaches you is to get the things out of your head down on paper without being the critique, without being the critic, without criticizing yourself. And that mm-hmm. was such a free, freeing thing for just the quantity. And I found almost every day, and I still do this exercise to this day, is that you get up there and you write type. Oh, I hate typing. What am I doing? This is so stupid. <laughs> I should be out smashing people with a pugil stick. And then, you know, you, <laughs> I'm tired. This is dumb. This is dumb. But the rules again are you can't stop, right? You can't stop. <laughs> I no backspace. Can't stop. Duh, duh. You know, God, well, why didn't my dad talk to my brother? Why didn't he? Why? You know, and then next thing you know, I'm, I'm weeping. I'm weeping on <laughs> the page. So it was such a good way for me to, um, process my feelings. So that is why I started writing. And again, I, (laughs) I, my education, you would not think I'd ever be a writer. And I worked seven years before I finally sold a script. I was writing scripts at first. I never thought I would have the chops to write a book. I was too insecure. I'd labeled myself someone who wasn't smart enough to actually, you know, write a book like smart people do. I put myself into that self self uh, inclusion box where I made myself small. I labeled myself as a jock who would never be able to do that. But I just kept showing up writing, writing, writing. It took seven years. I finally sold a script and then I sold a couple more scripts. And then uh, after American Gladiators ended, uh, some people came to me and said, you should write a, a memoir, a book. And I was like, no, no, I can't write a book. Are you kidding me? That's for smart. <laughs> that's for smart people. You know? And um, they kept talking to me. They said, look, you've written 24 scripts. You've sold movies, you've written, you've directed a movie. You've got to let that self-limiting belief go. You can do it. It's the same process. And I was really, really scared. So I put together a book proposal. It went out, it sold. And then I was like, I I don't know if I'm going to write this. And they said, okay, well, if we get you a ghostwriter, um, they take Mm -hmm. half the money. And I was like, what, what? 
<laughs> I was like, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, that's how it works. You know, Simon and Schuster, um, they said they, they take half the money. We're happy to get you one, but based upon your book proposal, you know, 90 pages, 75 page book proposal, three sample chapters. It's amazing. We think you can do this. Yeah. You already are part of a book's done. Well, part of the book's <laughs> Just done. Keep going. Yeah. The whole, uh, <laughs> uh, so a book proposal like that is you write three chapters, you write down uh, full chapters, you write the outline of the whole book, you list every single chapter and you have a paragraph under each chapter. So, and you write the introduction, like the sizzle. So it's literally 70 pages. Right. And all you need to do to write the rest of the book, because you've done the hard work is go to each chapter. Now that's all in the space. Yeah. That's a paragraph and fill in the spaces. Yeah. So, so I wrote because I had to, I wrote because it was cathartic. I wrote because I, I needed to understand. And that's the way I survived before I could learn to speak the things as a human being. I put them on paper first. So when the book came out, uh, gladiator, um, it did pretty well. I think I sold like 10,000 copies, which isn't, you know, that's excellent, which isn't that's great, a, but uh top 4%, I believe for the industry. But in my mind, <laughs> I, I needed my, my level of success that was acceptable to me was a New York times bestseller, right? Anything less than that was a failure. And I was so upset that the book didn't reach that pinnacle that I quit writing. And this is something I've done almost every day for 17, 18 years. I just said, I quit. You know what? I'm, I'm done. And I quit for quite a few years until I had the heart attack. And then I had that deep desire to tell stories again. And then I realized that I didn't write because I wanted to so much. I wrote because I had to. Awesome. Now, cause we're on a timeline and have a deadline, I'd like to wrap it up talking about your current creative project, Calm the Beast, and podcasting. And what is that doing for you? How is it affecting you? What are you learning? How do you like it? So the probably the fifth great epiphany happened for me with the heart attack, right? So the heart attack, I wrote the book F Dying. And F Dying was everything I learned from facing my mortality things that were important at one in, in one minute, a second later, they were unimportant. And I shared a lot of that in a Ted talk I did, which I think it's doing pretty well. I've had a lot of people have enjoyed it. It's, I think it has over 500,000 views and that it does. Yeah. Dan Nitro Clark, the Ted talk. So it's resonated with a lot, a lot, a lot of people, but that also caused me to dig deeper and to look back at what I call the beast and modern culture wants us to unleash our beast. Yo, unleash your beast, unleash your beast. I think it's under armor's whole thing. Mm -hmm. But my belief is that you have to calm the beast to unleash your beast. You have to get out of your own way. You have to quit stopping yourself to calm that beast. And that beast for everybody is the doubt, the fear. It's whatever that keeps you from living your best life in the area of health, uh, I say spiritually connected love and success, whatever, ever your def whatever your definition of success is. So you have the four pillars and the book is about calming the beast of anxiety, doubt, fear, stress. So you can get those out of your way. So you can go out and be your best and most authentic self. Does that make sense? Sure. And is the podcast a continuum? Is it your way to, um, 
I believe you call it errata on a book. You know, any extra changes that that's yeah. a big word. I, I've written two books. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Sorry, I, I did tech books, and oh. if there I, were I, mistakes because or problems with it, you need to have a page that said, "Hey, on page three sixty two, in that uh, program you're building, there's a mistake. Oh. You need to change." I thought you talking about erotica. Well, that's your like in book. my phone book under that secret thing. <laughs> there's Victoria, and she'll do anything you want. Well, there you go. But is the uh, podcast your way of continuing the TED Talk, continuing F Dine? And going into to new territory where creating a framework, which I coach to help people transform. I think a lot of people are like caterpillars. They're in their cocoon and I give them wings to fly. Okay. So the podcast is interviewing people who have overcome that beast and who are seemingly successful. So I'm less interested in how much money someone has, how much success they have, and how cool that is, even though it's really cool, and more interested in their, <laughs> in their process, their takeaways, the things people can apply. And here's what I've learned, and I'm sure, I don't know if you've learned this, if you've felt the same way. I found that people no matter how successful, all have the same trials and tribulations. And when other people hear somebody that's really successful, like I had a, a good friend of mine uh, on the podcast recently, she's Jen Witterstrom. She's a NBC's biggest loser coach for a couple of years. And she's just fantastic. She's amazing. She's gorgeous. You know, she's got a huge following. She's an author. She's very successful. But when you talk to her, she's so authentic and so real. And a lot of people have said, God, listening to her, someone who idolized that they go through the same stuff like I do, really gives me hope and it gives me encouragement. So that's one of the things I love to do. And plus, like you, I have a insane curiosity just about people in general. Mm -hmm. You know, my girlfriend is always like, gosh, you will talk to anybody anywhere. I just, I'm curious. I'm curious, like, you know, I'm, the waiter comes up and I'm like, hey, what's your name? I'm Dan, da, da, da. First, I humanize him, let him, you know, know I value him. Then I'll start asking, like, where are you from? Oh, you're from there? Oh, God. I'm just so curious and interested about people because I think that's one of the things we're missing today is the interaction is the connection. We've replaced it with Facebook, but it's kind of like having sex with a condom on all the time. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Only the, only the condom is a scuba suit it's, around you. In life. Your condoms aren't scuba suits? Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm in less dangerous crowds. <laughs> no, I've, I, you know what I'm saying as a joke, but what, what I'm, I'm saying, that's kind of like what it's like though. It's that, you know, we're missing that, that interaction. You know, we, uh, we used to be communities. We used to be tribes. This last 150, 200 years is really the first times we've become such exclusive, you know, the nuclear family behind walls, gates, fences, and doors where we thought we'd be happy. And it's caused a, a lack of, of connection. You know who wrote a great book about this um, is uh, Johan Hari. Um, mm. Lost Connections. Sapiens? No, Johan Hari. Am I getting his name? Johan. I'm pretty sure it's Johan Hari. It's not Sapiens, though, but it's called Lost Connections. And mm. it talks just about this. It gives a, a bunch of case stories. And he's a great writer. He writes like he's an investigative journalist. He writes kind of like Malcolm Gladwell in Pittsburgh in 1972. There was a flood. 13 people did that. He tells the story very prescriptive <laughs> like that. And that's been 
revolutionary for me who's had you know depressive episodes in the past who've masked them with drugs and partying and you know achievement and success and uh it, it's been really great and it's really great for a lot of people and i think the one line that he says that resonates is you know if you have depression or if you have anxiety there is nothing wrong with you you're just a human with unmet needs mm. pretty heavy that's a that is a perfect note to wrap on. Now, where can people find you, Dan? On your podcast. First there. First, yes. find me here. Find me here. So if you want to, you know, if you just want to connect with me, I'm really active on Instagram. I know I'm too old <laughs> for Instagram. It's like a younger kid. No, I think all the kids are going to TikTok, right? TikTok. I heard that. I'm not even on that. I'm, scared I, I'm not, that. I'm not either. I'm not either. <laughs> but if you listen to Gary Vee, you got to be on TikTok. You got to be on TikTok. <sighs> Yeah, right. Do I have to listen to Gary Vee? You don't have to. It's a choice. <laughs> you, you don't have to listen to, to Democrats or Republicans. You can always turn off the channel, right? Absolutely. So um, you could find me on Instagram at Dan Nitro Clark, on Facebook, uh, Dan Nitro Clark. And on Facebook, every Tuesday through Friday, um, I do a live seven to eight minute show giving you tips on motivation, inspiration, on, on um, how to calm the beast, and also the podcast Calm the Beast. And if they go to my website, uh, Dan net. There I'm giving away copies to my number one best-selling book, my second book, F Dying. Uh, you just go on there, fill out your email and you'll probably get some emails from me asking you to buy shit from my team <laughs> just to give you a heads up. But you do what you do do get, you can block after you get, but what you do get is you get a free digital download of my book F dying and it is transformational. If you're looking to come back after your setback, if you're looking to find happiness, joy, meaning fulfillment in your life, this book will change your life. And I used all the big words I know, but you can still probably read it in a weekend. It's a great book, seriously. And Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Eric. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible, its name is a web address, www.jones.show. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in LA and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the 12th grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's really famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session.